0: Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, educator, and trumpet player from Kalansky Organ, Nathan Ulley. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Nathan Woolley with us, joining us, of course. Sir, thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> i must say he's one of the more calm, cool guests so far. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's early. Yeah, that's fair.
0: <laughs> well, sir, believe it or not, I know you mainly off your work with Yoshi Wanda. I used to love his stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, and you're a trumpet player that is specializing in both the classic and jazz world. Uh, First, I'm curious, how did you get to know
1: Yoshi? Um, I was asked to play one of his famous pieces years ago. Um, There's a piece called Earth Horns, which is different brass players playing horns that he made out of... um, piping that he took out of different buildings I believe one of the buildings was actually the original fluxus building and he took all this the um the plumbing out and then tuned these horns to a drone and and he made this record of it you know 30 40 years ago and then they found the horns again he wanted to do the piece again um and so they were basically trying to find brass players that were crazy enough to play the piece because the the mouthpieces are also made of plumbing fittings, so they're they're really harsh, and you play these really long drones. Um, uh, the original one I think we played for two hours. The first time I played, it, I played it a couple times, and and then we played it at Yoshi's uh, memorial service, and that was four hours. So it, it was just kind of this insane thing. Um, Lawrence Kumpf, who was at that time working for Issue Project Room and now runs Blank Forms, just called me and said, Do you want to try and do this? And I I knew Yoshi's records, um, but I had never thought that I would get to play that. And then since then, uh after that, uh Yoshi and I played duo a couple times where I was playing trumpet and he was playing bagpipes. Um and then we hadn't talked to each other for a while, and then he kind of tragically Passed away suddenly during the pandemic. Yeah, I remember that exactly.
0: Yeah, okay. For so other brass people would know, I'm not really a brass player. I'm a percussionist. Could you explain the difference on the mouthpiece texture? For
1: sure. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at a like a trumpet mouthpiece, it's really smooth metal. Uh, different people have different ways that they want it to be, but it's smooth. You know, it's been polished. Um, the the plumbing fittings are really just like. You know, they're raw brass. They're, they haven't been polished. They're they're harsh. Uh, the metal is harsh on your face. We actually, the last one we did, we put beeswax around it just to make it a little more comfortable. So it actually cuts into the skin of your lips, um, especially if you're playing it for a super long time. So it, it's just an odd feeling. Plus, plus, you know, a, a trumpet mouthpiece, I have a size that I've used that I'm comfortable with, you know, when I play every day. But this is just like whatever plumbing size Yoshi got out of the building. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you're playing someone else's mouthpiece and it's a mouthpiece that like is very rough on your chops or it's almost like it's covered in in sandpaper, you know. So, yeah, it, it was an intense experience, um, but totally worth it. I wouldn't exchange any of those concerts for anything. I, I had a blast doing that music. It's incredible music. And how was he as a person, this curious. Quiet, um, reserved, but he knew what he wanted. Um, you know, I, I think he there was always this feeling of um, w- when I worked with him, there was this feeling of like, let's just see what happens, um, which I really appreciate. I've worked with a lot of different composers and I find myself drawn towards the ones that set up a system and then just say, well, let's see what happens when we engage with this system. Um, and I think Yoshi's like that, you know, that probably comes from Fluxus and and some of the performance art world that he was surrounded by. Um, but I think he was just almost, I got a feeling that he was more experimenting in sound than being a composer. When we played duo, he was I would show up and he'd have his bagpipes, but then he'd also have, like, he would be building sirens, you know, like um, the kind that you crank, and, and just building them literally before the gig. And he's like, I think I'm going to play these on the gig. <laughs> so we didn't know what it would be. Ooh. I was trying to tune to him, you know, um, but it was super fun because – it's it's very different than the world i'm used to which is prepare for a thing, show up, do the best you can to get the most perfect version of that thing or the most interesting version of that thing and then go home. This was like you i felt more like i was just in the stream of of creating something with yoshi every time we did it. You know, i wish i'd had more opportunities to do that. It was really special.
0: Okay. Okay, get I try to get out of my fanboy moments. And then,
1: <laughs> it's, so. I mean, Yoshi's, it's great that there are fanboys of Yoshi's because I think not enough people know his music.
0: I personally was That's one of jazz, oh, I shouldn't say jazz, experimental artists that when we lost during the pandemic, I was like, ah. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah that, was a, a that was a tough stuff. one, for sure. Okay, but back to you now. Uh, can you yeah. tell us about your education, where you're from?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Oregon, um, in a really small town in Oregon called Klatskenai, Um, and really shouldn't have been into music at all based on where I grew up. But my dad was a big dance sax player. And so he was there teaching school when I was born. Um, and I was just surrounded by music, a lot of jazz, especially when I was growing up to the point that I just thought that was normal to have that music around all the time. And then when I was about 12, uh, he, he had a big band or he was in a big band uh, that played two or three or four nights a week. And I happened to go to a gig with him where one of the trumpet players didn't show up. He couldn't, he, for, I can't remember what the reason was, but I had my horn. So I played with the band at 12. And then from that point on, I was just in the band. Um, And that's where I that was really like most of my basic education, like how to read chord changes, how to solo, how to play in a section, playing in tune. All that stuff came from sitting in the back of that uh, big band with all these guys from like the Stan Kenton band and the Harry James bands and Woody Herman that had retired. But then they've got this kid and they were showing me how they learned how to play. And then I went to school, you know, went to University of Oregon I did my master's at University of Denver. um, And when I was in Denver, I studied a lot with Ron Miles. Um, Very, I don't think he would have ever let me say that I studied with him, but um, I learned a lot just hanging out with him for those four years. And then I moved to New York in 2001 and I've, I've been here ever since.
0: Okay. And how did you get into the experimental phase?
1: When I moved to New York, I was, I mean, I, probably hanging out with Ron Miles, that was a big part of things to begin with because he was approaching the trumpet differently, even though he was still absolutely a jazz player. um, The way that he thought about the trumpet was a lot different. So I already had that in my head a little bit. Um, And then when I moved to New York, I I could already see that, you know, like I, I moved to New York thinking, oh, I'll be like Dave Douglas or some, someone like that. Um, and then you move here and you realize, oh, man, there's like 70 people that can do that better than me. Um, and so instead of just trying to outdo that thing that already existed, I, I really spent a couple of years trying to figure out what my language would be. Um, and I, I basically rebuilt the way that I thought of music for two or three years when we first moved to New York. Um, And as I was doing that, you know, I would, I was still playing gigs. So the way I was playing was changing and I was using a lot more sound and extended techniques and um, silence and and kind of anti-jazz things in the way I was improvising. And people would come up and say, oh, do you know so-and-so? And, you know, it'd be, do you know Greg Kelly? Oh, no. So I'd go check that out. Do you know um, Axel Durner No. Well, you know, then I go check that out. And from that, then it would be like, then you start that ball rolling. It's the same with like any anything when you get interested in jazz or other music or books or films, like you check one thing out and then that leads opens all these doors to other stuff. Um, and I think that was just a really good that was an interesting time to be around for me because. All of those people were active and everybody was really open about not only sharing their experiences and and leading er, each other into all these new directions, but there was no feeling like that we had to be this one thing, you know, like I moved here at the same time as Mary Halverson and Peter Evans and Jessica Pavone and all these people that went in dra- drastically different directions, but we were all friends. So then we were all just checking each other's stuff out, but no one ever said, oh, you should be more like this. I think everybody just liked the experience that we were going through together. So I was really lucky in that way. And yeah. And then more over the years, just my listening changed. It's hard. I don't listen to much jazz anymore. I listen more to experimental music and classical music and, whatever. I, I don't know why, but that's just the way that my life is taking oh, me. I got to you know? ask you, are you saying that you just don't like the modern jazz world? Um, no, I do like it, but I don't find myself listening to it a ton. I, I think one thing that happened to me, and I have some friends that have a similar experience, is that, you know, I've been listening to jazz since I was four or five or six years old. Mm-hmm. So, I I went through it and I, and I by no means have like the kind of encyclopedic knowledge of jazz that a lot of my friends do. Um but I listened to it so much and it was such a part of my life and and in college I mean it was just like from the minute I woke up to the minute I went to bed I was listening to especially like contemporary jazz, you know, that New York yes. scene late 90s early 2000s Zorn, Dave Douglas, um that whole world, Ellery Eskelin, and you know, you when you're listening to it like that, you just start to. It's not like you're picking up licks necessarily, but you start to understand the direction the music is moving, and there there comes a point where you either get super deep into understanding what that is, or you seek out something that's different. And I think I recognized that those people did that really well. Um, and I didn't really feel the need to understand it on a deeper level. I just wanted to enjoy it for what it was. And then around that same time, all of a sudden I was hearing Elian Radig and Zanakis and uh, you know, Shiarino and and different things, and it just seemed like, oh, that's that makes more sense for me as a trumpet player, the way that I play both my strengths and my weaknesses seem to fit better in this world than they do in the modern jazz world. I still put on, like, I just put on an Ellery Eskelin record lately and loved it. You know, Mary gives me her records whenever I see her, and I think they're amazing. Chris Davis, like, you know, I got to play with Ambrose recently, and he sounds incredible, and I'll listen to anything he puts out. I I, I just don't seek it out in the same kind of way that I used to. Okay,
0: understood. So what would you suggest to a person who just finished from like the New School? From from the New School? From like the New School or even Juilliard or one of those sc- contemporary yeah. schools? Because I the- mean, I
1: I teach at the New School a little bit and one thing I always it's kind of like the last lesson I always give is talking about the the greatest um difficulty that I think musicians, especially musicians dealing with improvisation come across, and that is becoming bored. Um, you know, you're in school and you're working on playing the trumpet, say you're working on, you know, you're playing, working on giant steps and you're playing in tune and in time and you're doing your thing. Um, And and I know this from my own experiences that you get into that world and you're like, well, I will be able to do this for the rest of my life. I will be able to work on these things because there's never an end, right? As you get older, you start to gain a certain confidence in that music. I wouldn't say mastery, but you become confident in the way that you play your instrument. You play, become confident in the way that you navigate whatever music you've chosen to play. And there are two directions then You know, one is you continue to do that at that level and it becomes a job and you get bored because you've you've figured out the mechanism of what you need to do or you start to look at what is around you and can feed you moving forward and changing the way that you play. You know what I mean? So a big thing that I always talk about is like learning now when you're young how to come up with your own practice regimens, how to take things from outside your musical milieu. If that's, if you're a jazz player, to look at classical music, to look at music from other cultures besides the US or Europe, um, to look at other instruments, and also to look at things like books that you're reading, films, going out in nature, going to a museum, and trying to find ways that you can put them into a sort of practice to expand the way that you think about your instrument and the way that you think about improvising. And it's weird and it's tricky and it's like a difficult thing to do at first. But if you start doing that young, and and I did luckily because I grew up in a small town and, and I had lessons, I'm not, you know, I, I had teachers, which was great. But like a lot of my time was just spent trying to figure out how to do stuff on my own. And so now I'm very rarely bored with the trumpet. I mean, you know, it's like there's always something that I read or something that I see or hear. And I go, oh, wow, that's a cool idea. How can I spend a half an hour on my trumpet trying to figure that out? Um, And it just helps me keep going, you know, because there's nothing sadder to me than a bored musician. You know, it's like... the The great thing about music is that it never ends. Like, that's why I love it. I'm never going to master it. It's always going to be difficult, um, which is great. I love that. Like, why would you want to do something that, you know, at some point will be over for a living?
0: So the students that because I see this a lot also. And there's some yeah. that even ask me this. It's like they come out of the universities and they're so fixated on how jazz is supposed to be. It's supposed to be from yeah. this way, sound this way, have this type of form, and they believe that will get them more streams, more downloads. Sure. I mean, since people don't buy albums like that
1: anymore. But right. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How do you approach that as a professor? Well, I, I think it's really easy to point out when that's not true. I mean, Yes, there is a way to play, and there are a handful of people that get a lot of attention for playing in that way that we all think we're supposed to play. But there's only a handful. And the the ones that I've seen that I've come up with that have been the most successful are the ones who have just played the way they want to play. And they've been very rigorous. I mean, the example for me always is Mary Halverson. I mean, Mary has played the way she's played since I've known her. And she's always working and she's always trying to get better at the way that she plays. She's not trying to sound like, you know, um, Nels Klein and she's not trying to sound like, you know, whoever, Joe Pass or whatever guitarist. She's just working on sounding like an evolving version of Mary Halverson. And that's brought her a ton of respect. Um, Ambrose sounds like Ambrose. you know, Peter Evans sounds like Peter Evans. Dave Douglas sounds like, you know, like mm-hmm. the people who have been successful are the ones who have, while respecting whatever tradition they're interested in, and everybody has a different relationship to that, you know, they have found a way to be true to the sound in their head. You know, that, that two or three years that I had where I rebuilt everything, is extreme. But I think anybody that's been successful in jazz, especially improvised music, has done some version of that, whether they've consciously done it or not. Um, So for me, the students that say, well, yeah, listen, I got to, first of all, those students don't study with me. You know, (laughs) they see that that's a losing proposition.
0: Hold on a second. I'm sorry. No problem. As you can tell, I'm using a home studio. So I forgot to unplug the phone. I'm sorry about that. Very unprofessional. I know. (laughs) How about the artists that are just starting that are trying to get their stuff out because you literally face this, this issues all the time. I see some of them try to go streaming online and stuff, and I don't think they're ready. And I even had Mm -hmm. guests in the past that are older who say point blank, like it's on the internet forever. So if you sound like garbage when you're 20, even when you're 40, people are going to pull up that old one and be like, (sighs)
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, there are things of mine on there that, you know, I didn't consciously put them up there, but someone, someone did. And, you know, at the time I was like, I don't care, you know, go ahead. You can put it up. Um, And I wish they weren't up there now, because if someone happens across it and they're like, Well, this guy. I was having a bad day or I just, or I just was young and wasn't really ready to deal um, with playing. Like I was still learning. Um, I think it's really tricky. I I understand the desire to put things out there. Um, And I certainly had a period where I was on, you know, I was on like eight to 10 CDs a year. I mean, I was just like, on any, anybody that ever asked me, I was like, great, I'll do it, you know. Um, and, and that was helpful to a certain degree. I mean, that I wasn't seeking it out, but I was taking advantage of it. And it was harmful. You know, I think there was a certain point where people were like, I'm sick of hearing this. I didn't have enough ideas to really deal with that much either. You know, it wasn't like I was able to do eight or 10 CDs where I was really creative on all of them. You know, to a certain extent, it became like a circus routine. I was just doing the thing that I knew how to do. Um, the The thing for me with with younger players that I see, and I don't know I don't know if history is going to bear me out with this or not. i we could just be at a time when the way that we consume art is different, and this might just be the inflection point. And from here on out, it's a totally different thing. But I, I do think that there's, there is a tendency towards image over kind of the practice of making music. And I guess what I, what I mean is that it's not in, in my world or for me or what makes me happy is waking up every day and going through the process of being a musician and a creative human being. I like that, and I, I value the people in my life who think like that. Um, You know, like I work a lot with Ken Vandermark and Vandermark wakes up every day and tries to make something, you know, and and be creative. And you understand that from age, whatever, to the the moment that you can't do it anymore is one long arc of a life. Um, And within that you play concerts and you put out records and you do interviews maybe, or you have conversations or masterclasses or whatever. And each of those are just points on that arc. And some of them are better and some of them are worse and that's okay. Um, But sometimes I see, and I think it's the nature of social media, you'll see someone that has prepared a 45 second thing. um, And all of the weight goes into that 45 second thing. And I always, I'll watch it and I think it's beautiful a lot of times. Sometimes the, the playing is incredible, but then I'm like, well, what, what happened when their phone went off? You know, did they what what did they do? You know, did they just put those clothes back in the closet and turn off their light and like not practice? Or or is this another version of we're seeing points in time? I, I just never get the feeling that the arc is there or the desire to be rigorous. And it's still really early. I don't know I, i'm hoping that i'll be totally wrong about that and this was just a way another way that we can see that the same way that records and cds and performances were when i was coming up if you um, you want and i more think it will per- be for some and won't be for others you know yeah
0: i feel like it's not really about the personality of the artist much anymore it's about the direct image what could yeah. sell yeah i yeah. do agree on yeah. that and even in other forms of music if we go going to popular mainstream these songs are getting shorter and shorter it's just a yeah. hook and a beat and yeah. it's not like something unique or original if that makes yeah. more sense yeah yeah
1: oh no, it's i i had a really interesting conversation years ago and i think about it a lot and i've i've told a lot of people about it because it's still really relevant i i was pl- i used to play duo a lot with with peter evans and we were playing a concert and we had done our sound check and we were eating dinner or something. We were talking about, I had talked about playing in some jazz group and, and I was like, yeah, I I'm approaching it by thinking of the whole set as one solo. So I try to on the first tune, I play one solo. And then in the second tune, I try and pick up something from that and keep it going. And, you know, just thinking of a longer arc over an evening. And he was like, yeah, but what if you did that for your entire lifetime? And I was like, oh, that's an interesting. And and I I think he was kind of just being controversial with me to say like, I can I can take every single second and and put it together. But I think a lot about a lot about that is the way that we live our lives. You know, like I just warmed up before I before I got on to talk to you. After we get done talking, at some point today, I'll practice, and that's just not only an extension of what I did this morning. But it's all, it's an extension of the recording I did last night. You know, it it will lead into the next time I play next week. You know, it's just like, and that's just the same thing as making lunch and whatever. It's just what you do. Um, And the world gets to see little snapshots of that, but it's not actually the thing. You know, it's just like people getting to see a little bit of it in practice. But behind that is this much larger thing. And with the short social media stuff, that snapshot is is highly produced and short and can be a lot more shallow, I think, than, than even seeing a wider evening-long performance or a, a really well-thought-out recording. Okay.
0: So what do you think is missing in the modern music world?
1: Yeah. Good question. Probably the same thing that's always been missing, you know, it's, it's, I think there, it's hard to make a, a statement about what might be missing culturally, because it's so easy to find an example to the contrary, you know, so yeah, I do think that there's, there's much more weight on the image of the performer than there was even 10 years ago. But for all of that i see a lot of players that are just hunkered down doing rigorous work and not worrying too much about their image that they, they really want to hang on that um you know i think there are people it, it would be great if there was some support from anybody in the arts you know that there there are those people that are fans that support the music and man, that's amazing that they do it. And I'm so thankful that they're there, but it'd be great if there was a broader support system for musicians. Um, You know, like, I don't know. I don't know if when Yoshi passed away, if he had health insurance, you know, I don't know if he, if he had, you know, money to live. He was in his seventies. You know, I have, friends i i work with elian radig who's in her 90s now and if she hadn't had a relatively famous painter husband i don't know that she would have any money you know and and it's it's sad to me because these people have have um, undertaken a very noble goal and it's it's an odd place that we're in as a society where the we only kind of give support and money to people that make something that is concrete that we can buy and sell, you know, and especially now with the move to streaming where there isn't the widget of the CD or the LP or the cassette or whatever, I think it's going to marginalize more musicians because it's very difficult for people to support or understand why they should support someone that, just puts a thing on the internet that they can download for 99 cents and and never have a really direct um even a direct interaction with the person through holding the cd that they made you know yes so what do you recommend to newer
0: artists to to have a second career
1: (laughs) i mean i i do i you know i've always worked a job i i edit a, a music journal for a living now but, I, you know, I've worked for the sewer company, I've worked in restaurants, I've, you know, done all kinds of jobs. Um, that's one option. Um, I got really good advice when I moved to New York uh, from this great trumpet player, Dave Ballou. He said, you know, you kind of have to figure out what you, what's important to you, what's more important. One is, do you need to just have the horn on your face all the time? Or you need to play the music that you want to play? And I got here and I tried both. I mean, I tried playing on Broadway and I tried playing, you know, and pick up big bands and all this stuff. And I was miserable um, because I wasn't playing the stuff I wanted to play. So I got a job and did that. Um, that's, that's living in New York too. It's tricky to be here and to do it. Um, so I think figuring out what you want and figuring out how you're going to do it with the understanding that it might not be the easiest path, um, to get there. But if you stay focused on one, what you want to do and two being true to whatever sound is in your head and what you want to do with it with, with faith that if I like it and I believe in it, someone else is going to like it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, it's the thing that shocks most of my students is, is, You can do crazy stuff if you hear it and you believe in it. There will be people in the world when they hear it that have been waiting to hear that thing. They're excited about it, you know, so it's just having faith in what you want to do, sticking with it, putting the work in, in whatever way you have to, to stay alive um, and not giving up, which is tricky and it sounds like a, you know, a pep talk, but Essentially, that's what I found with myself and, and watching the people around me, you know, that have all done the same thing. And I've, I've seen them all hit a different level of success at different times, but they're all still doing the same thing they wanted. The people that I've seen that haven't, that aren't still playing music are the ones that either didn't really sincerely go for the sound in their head, mm-hmm. Or they lied to themselves about what they really wanted out of music. And ultimately they get burnt out and quit. So I gotta those two that.
0: things. So what did they what do you mean by they didn't really want for music?
1: I think I think the people I know, and these were people that I went to college with or high school with that were were playing and they went out into the world to be players. And I think they they either thought that they wanted to do the thing where I'm going to get on Blue Note and or I'm going to get on ECM and become a big hero, you know, person like my hero, or they kind of just thought, oh, I, I just want to use this to pay the bills. And in either situation, that wasn't really what they wanted. I mean, it's all on an individual basis, but in some cases, their playing wasn't really in the style. They, they thought they wanted a certain kind of fame, but they that's not really the way they wanted to play. You know, Their sound was a specific thing, but they were trying to shoehorn it into another style to be successful. Um, or they really just wanted to play the way they wanted to play, but they were hung up on this idea of, I have to make all my money as a musician or I'm a failure. You know, and in America, that's not necessarily true. Um, it's really hard to make your living as a musician. I don't know that many people, even here with the people that I play with, you know, that I see them on festivals in Europe, that a lot of them are working some sort of job here to make a living, you know? So it it's just understanding who you are, what you want to do, and that changes, you know, of course, you get older, I've I've changed in what I want to and then you have to adjust and then just being creative and patient about figuring out how you're going to make it work.
0: Okay, that was a far better answer than I could ever expect.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully, hopefully it works for people. I mean, it's In my experience, it, it works, but of course, there will be the one person that it doesn't work for. And... I mean,
0: I had some people that were on that whole mindset of like, once I take another part-time job, I'm starting to fail as a musician. Yeah,
1: yeah. I get it. I mean, I get that, and it's not for everyone. You know, I I, I like working. I've worked a job since I was 14. There's a part of me that I think I work better, I mean, as a musician— when I have something else to focus on for part of my day. Um, other people might feel differently, but I think that was kind of like blues thing. If you just wanna have the horn on your face, then that's cool, but understand that you're gonna have to play a lot of music you don't wanna play. And that that's the trade-off. Very few people walk into a career in music and they only play the music they wanna play and they make a good living. I feel like the people that do already have enough money to live when they enter you know and they lose money by being a musician but they still are able to keep it together yeah that brings up a whole lot of
0: point but yes i i do yeah but i
1: mean that's that's another way of doing it too which is certainly valid and it doesn't mean they work any less hard than the rest of us so okay and then so When you're performing
0: in a classical setting, because you played for the Philharmonic before, congrats on that. I'm always impressed when people could do both sides of the spectrum. Uh, How does that
1: differ? Well, I mean, I should say that I I play in the classical world in in a very niche way. You know, that it's I, I play almost entirely contemporary classical music. Much of it has been written around the language that I developed for improvising. So, for example, playing with the Philharmonic was playing Ash Fury's piece, Filament. The trumpet part is written based on her sitting with me as I played a bunch of sounds. So, you know, it's very specific to me. Um, And that so that that's helpful. Um, But a lot of times I look at the, the composed music or classical music as a way to open up another sound world for me for, as an improviser. So right now I'm working on uh, this Christian Wolf piece, which I premiered a bunch of years ago. Um, but the recording is coming out, so I have to play it again, and it's, it's not a terribly difficult piece technically but I can't approach it the same way I would approach playing with Ken Vandermark, you know, like I can't use that same sound. It doesn't sound right. So a lot of the work goes into matching, matching the sound world on the horn with the music that I'm confronted with. Um, And I think of it the same way as, as any kind of improvised, um, setting. So last night I did a record, a duo record with this saxophonist Evo Perlman. And Evo plays very specifically, like it's very glissy, he plays real high, it's a very abstract language. And I brought my piccolo trumpet as well, which I'd been playing Bach on like over the break. And it was really fascinating to just say, okay, I've got this tool. But in this in this situation, my language has to change and the sound has to change. And that that was a nice challenge. It works the opposite way, too, where I'm presented with, you know, the Wolf or Christian Pizarro or I play a lot of Robert Erickson's music and you go, OK, well, it's all B flat, B flat trumpet, which is what I just used to play this jazz gig. But I have to approach this with a different sensibility. And so the back and forth is really amazing because then then when you're purely improvising, you know, when when I can just play solo or I'm playing with improvisers that I really trust to just go anywhere, then all of a sudden you have this huge wide open palette of colors you can work with. I can go into very tight, kind of controlled, classical sounding trumpet that's very fleet and, you know technically all over the place and then let the horn break up and have all this distortion or play changes or, you know, I, I want ultimately in the best possible situation to have every single possibility open to me when I'm improvising. And that means also playing with the classical sound. So the two things are just, are just the same thing to me, essentially, I approach them in the same way the only thing that really sets them apart is I'm way more stressed out when I play classical music because there is something there that, that someone in the audience knows when it's wrong. You know what I mean? Yes. i since age 12, I've learned how to cover my mistakes. You know, I'm, I'm an expert at covering my mistakes when I'm improvising, but if I miss that high D in the Christian Wolf piece, Often Christian Wolf is sitting there knowing that I miss the Heidi, you know. So it's a little more stressy, but I also kind of like that. I like, I like being stressed out about those things and and having to view the trumpet in a in a tighter way every once in a while. I think it's good good for me for my growth, you know.
0: Okay, that's a good point. Okay, uh, some things on your latest album. Okay, the eighteen yeah. songs of. Burlap heroes okay first of, all, yeah. first of all i loved it
1: i actually I'm used glad. it
0: for one of my youth groups that i work with i pretty oh, much played the song and i asked them to draw what they think nice i got completely different stuff and then when <laughs> i tried to get it back like last week so i could show you of yeah. course none of them have it because it's teenagers uh, i okay. don't know what the yeah <laughs> so i'm upset about my i screwed that part up <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i should have took one there or then but Tell me how you actually approach writing something like
1: that. Um, that was an interesting record because I I really approached it starting from kind of from the band. Uh, it's the second record of that band. Mm-hmm. So I had already done one. I kind of figured some things out. Um, and it's three... Besides me, there are three really individual, amazing, um, personal sounding musicians, but they all approach music in a different way. So Mary Halverson can read anything you put in front of her. Um, You know, she's very technical, very she can nail it, but she's super creative. Um, Susan Alcorn, on the other hand, really doesn't read that much music at all. So I have to send her things and she learns it by ear. So then she's got this really deep knowledge of the music before we even get there. Nice. Um, she understands it in a way that I don't, you know, cause she's really absorbed it. And then Ryan is coming from this place somewhere in between the two. He reads music just fine, but he also feels things in a certain way, but he, he grew up in playing rock. He's an amazing jazz drummer, but there's always this kind of like heavy rock thing um, that I love about his playing And so it was like each piece I kind of started from, it was backwards actually in a lot of ways. Like I started from what I wanted to hear them do and I put that together. And then at the last minute I put some trumpet thing that would be fun to play on top, you know, which usually meant that the trumpet thing was way harder than it should have been. Um, but it made the, the group sound really cohesive. Um, and then putting the record together kind of just fell from that. We, we played the tunes. I had certain ideas. You know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and think like, oh, it would be cool to hear Matt Maneri on this. And was in a position, that lucky position, that I could just email him and be like, do you want to do this? Um, and then the as far as the way that the record flows... I've been working a lot with this woman, Anaya Lockwood, amazing composer, who does all these things with nature, um, recordings of nature, and she thinks a lot about ecology, and she got me into thinking about that. And so I just started thinking, what if the whole record kind of felt like it was in nature, um, as opposed to feeling like it's in a studio in New York, you know, with New York musicians, but what if it felt like it you could almost feel like the grass growing or the water rushing by not in a like dozy kind of way, but in a way that really made you feel a certain kind of space and, you know, then decisions get made and you try stuff out and it doesn't work. It does work. And, and people give me a suggestion and sometimes it's just the thing and I hadn't thought of it. So ultimately somehow it came out the way it did. I loved it, but now Um, you got me curious on that. How did you, actually record it then? So we recorded the tunes, the three long tunes in one session, in two days, I guess we did. Um, and that was a little tricky, you know, because it does have a lot of overdubs or spots where the group is doubled up. And so, you know, it took us a little bit of time to get all that together. Um, and then the the recordings that that go between the pieces of the nature stuff, that was all taken from Maine. Uh, I was up in Maine with my wife, and I would get up, i get up really early, so I would go out and take recordings of all the fishermen going to work. Um, and just things, you know, sitting on the rain and like these sorts of things that were sounds that I thought were beautiful and, and things sounds that meant something to me as a kid that grew up in Oregon, like rain sounds, water sounds. Um, you know, these were lobster fishermen, but I grew up around loggers that left at early in the morning too. So the sound of diesel trucks starting up at four or five in the morning, like is a sound that I love. Um, and so I just kind of picked the ones that, that I thought were kind of the nicest evocation of that space. And then basically as we got as we got into the studio, I already knew which ones were going to fade in and out. So I kind of just tried to set the session up so that we had that feeling Um, and then I just put it in in the mixing process and did that and had amazing, you know, producer David Breskin, who produces a lot of the pyroclastic stuff, was there and very helpful and Ron St. Germain um, who's, you know, the guy that recorded all the Bad Brains records and stuff. And he was around for the mixing and between the two of them, they kind of helped me if I, if I was like, I don't know how this flows. Right. They, they had enough knowledge and experience to kind of help me out with that.
0: Okay. Well, I highly suggest everyone, especially into experimental music, check that out. Cause thanks. like I said, I think that was one of the best ones of the year. <laughs> oh, thanks, if, man, thank you. Thank uh, you. There's two things I want also, I want to ask. Have you ever been asked to play on a non-jazz, non-classical album? Yeah.
1: And how was yeah,
0: versus this? I got, since you seem
1: to do um, everything. I when when I moved here, I did a lot of stuff with with pop bands. Um I I moved here and a friend of mine from a man from middle school had gone to uh, Juilliard, and he was playing here, and he was, you know, playing in the classical world, and he was playing with all these rock bands, and then he got a gig teaching at Louisiana State, so he split, and I got all his gigs. Are you at Louisiana? I noticed you had a Louisiana. Uh, my shirt sister on. went there. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> yeah, so he he went there to teach, and and I got all his gigs, and and a lot of these bands were like that a huge horn section and a bunch of strings and my wife is a cellist so she got on with a lot of those bands too so it was kind of nice cuz we could play together um and did some recording stuff and and just some pickup stuff of like rock band x needs a trumpet solo always like they want something like penny lane can you play high you know and i kind it was cool i it was another one of those things like I did it for four or five years. I enjoyed it, actually. I think it's kind of fun to do those sorts of things where they don't they don't really know what they want. I mean, they didn't write it out for you, but they hum it to you and you figure it out. Um. But then I realized just like with the jazz thing, like there are people that are amazing at that, you know, like I, I moved here again, another person that moved here around the same time as Kelly Pratt who ended up doing all the horn arrangements for David Byrne and he plays, you know, played with arcade fire and, and all those guys from arcade fire moved here. And we were hanging out at the same time too. So it's like, yeah, I know what it takes to really do that. Um, and I don't have it. So I'll do my thing and let them do it. I still do some stuff. Um, this band extra life, I just did their record and, um, have done some stuff for the, singer of liturgy. But, you know, that's that's more in my world. Um You know, they're hiring me more for what I do than to be like a session trumpet player at this point. So but it's still fun. I have a blast doing it.
0: Okay. And what is your dream album? You had no barriers, no budget constraints, nothing? What would be man? It?
1: That's a really good question. I I mean I think about this a lot cuz I I've I've had these pieces over the years called Seven Story Mountain and they they're these like ecstatic pieces and the group gets larger and larger every time I do them. And the last one I did was 32 people and it had like a 21 person choir and 11 people, three drummers, like this huge thing. And there's one more, there's supposed to be one more in the series. And I don't know what it would be at this point. It's that sort of like, well, what can you dream up that's bigger than that? And I don't know what it would be. I honestly, I don't. I'm in a weird place in that I'm happy with what I'm doing. I've played with the people I want to play with. Um, I. I really off the top of my head, there's no one living that like. I feel like I I would love to play with anybody, but there's not that like, oh, if I could only play with. I've done that. I've, I've been super lucky to get to play with Braxton and, and Parker and Barry Guy and all these people that I love and have respected. And it's like. I don't know what it would be. I really don't. Um, it's hard for me to think that way. If I if I do think of a dream situation, I'll let you know, but right now I'm more like I'm, I'm more involved in just trying to figure out how to get done what I need to get done for the next record. You know, that's understandable. Like,
0: okay. If there was any artist for any era that you could play with,
1: who would it be? Ooh, that's a really good question. You know who I've always wanted to play with is Booker Little. Booker Little was like my my hero as a kid. Um, You know, I my dad had all these jazz records. um, A lot of Clifford Brown, you know, the stuff that you get as a jazz trumpet kid was never super into Clifford Brown. I don't know why. Um, And then. At a record store, I bought some record and the guy working at the store gave me a Booker Little record as a gift. And I have listened to like every note I can find of Booker Littles. And he opened everything up for me because he played weird and I played weird. Like there was something that resonated with the way that he played. It didn't seem as tight in the box as like Clifford Brown and Freddie Hubbard and all these other guys. It just seemed a little crazy and that was that's one that i i would have loved to have known him and to play play with him for sure that that i still you know of all that we were talking about jazz earlier i probably still listen to booker little like once a week and there aren't that many records i just listen to him all the time
0: okay well sir could you tell everyone your social media your website how to find your music where to find it? sure
1: Sure. I mean, the website is Um I try to update it. I don't do a great job, but it's there. It exists. Um, there's a Bandcamp page. You can look it up under Nate Woolley. Um, there's also a label that a lot of that stuff is on called Pleasure of the Text. Both of those have Bandcamp pages. Um, and then social media, I guess I'm only on Instagram as far as I know uh and it's at pleasure of the text and, okay. and that's how you can find me well sir
0: thank you for coming on honored yeah, to thank have you. you as my 100th guest
1: oh Seriously. wow i didn't even know i'm glad you didn't tell me i would have been super nervous nah
0: stop <laughs> i was actually <laughs> yes yeah, you could tell in the beginning a tad bit of a little of a fanboy <laughs> <But> <laughs> yes.
1: well thank you so much for for asking me to do it i had a blast so well, thank you for coming a Good on. way to start the day
0: <laughs> and everyone this is leanna from Impav exchange Thank you, and have a good day. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.